Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are going to talk about trailblazing lesbians you should know. Exactly. There are a lot of them who made a mark on society. Yeah. And we're not just talking about, although she is awesome, Mm -hmm. we're just talking about Ellen. Yeah. Or Rosie. Yeah. Or Jodie Foster. Or Cynthia Nixon. There are other important women that you should know. Yeah. From a very diverse range of uh, careers and accomplishments and time periods. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we get into our list, um, I wanted to mention an article published in June this year, 2011, in the Village Voice um, that was written, I think it was partially inspired by the fact that um, Out Magazine, which publishes an annual Power 50 list of influential gays in the mainstream, included only 11 women. Yeah, there have got to be more than that. And there are, and there are, as we'll show. But some of the people they include are on our list as well, such as Anise Parker, the mayor of Houston. Uh, and Tammy Baldwin, who's running for Senate. Um, but they also mention Jodie Foster, Massachusetts Supreme Court Justice Barbara Link, and uh, Eileen Chaikin, is that right? The producer of The L Word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and The L Word uh, is partially responsible for this kind of cultural idea of power lesbians. Mm-hmm. Also, Sex in the City, there was a, the episode where Charlotte... Um, was kind of trying to court this group of like powerful Manhattan oh, yeah. lesbians. Um, she really liked their glasses and their shoes. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. And then they wouldn't let her come on vacation with them because they found out that she was not a lesbian. Right. So, um, the article talks about how, um, obviously there are, you know, a lot of, of very powerful and successful lesbians, but, um, they possibly because of their gender, have a harder time as they being out as they climb the corporate ladder. There's a quote from Celise Berry, who's the executive director of Out and Equal Workplace Advocates, who says of women Fortune 500 executives, quote, as people go up the corporate ladder, they're seen as going into the closet. And there have been a number of um, organizations, uh, like gay and lesbian organizations who are speaking to the village voice saying that it can be hard for them to attract powerful lesbians as, you know, like fundraisers, donors, um, to mixed events. Right. And it's also hard. Uh, it was noted that, uh, not all lesbians want to bring in more people from their own backgrounds and people similar to them, other lesbians, because they don't want to be seen as like, I'm just promoting people like me. I can't, you know, I, I don't want to work with anyone else like me. So it's, you know, they're, they're avoiding bringing in more, uh, lesbian executives. Mm-hmm. And this is in contrast, um, in this Village Voice article, this is sort of a contrast to the network of successful, powerful gay men who tend to network a lot more among mm-hmm. their community. Right. And, uh, Amy Lesser, the publisher and editor in chief of Go Magazine, was quoted as saying that not everybody wants to be labeled a power lesbian. And even if they are out, a lot of them to this day downplay uh, that aspect of their lives. Yeah, because like a lot of things we talk about on the podcast, I'm sure you want to be seen as more than just a, w- a successful woman or as a successful, quote unquote, power lesbian. Yeah, you want to know, you know, I, I am capable of doing this job. I don't it doesn't matter that I'm a woman or I'm a lesbian or I'm a gay man or whoever. Right. 
Yeah. So with that in mind, um, we wanted to talk about some trailblazing lesbians you may or may not have heard of, um, but also just radical women in general who've yeah. done a lot of really cool things. Yeah, they, they've contributed a lot. There's um, S. Josephine Baker, who was born in 1873, died in 1945. She was a physician who organized the first child hygiene department under government control in New York City. And under her tenure, um, she had the lowest infant death rate in any American or European city during the 1910s. I thought this was interesting, too. Um, one of the things that she did within uh, that child hygiene department was organize something called the Little Mothers League. And it was to train older siblings, particularly older daughters, to take care of their infant siblings, which would allow mothers at the time to leave the home and work if necessary without their children suffering neglect. Right. She actually was the first woman, speaking of being a trailblazer, she was the first woman to earn a doctorate in public health from the New York University and Bellevue Hospital Medical College, which later changed its name to New York University School of Medicine. And I thought this was interesting. She was instrumental in identifying typhoid Mary. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, the cook, uh, uh, what's her name? Mary Malone, Malin? Mary Malone, a cook who had worked in several New York households and who had unwittingly caused a small, small, small typhoid epidemic, you whoops. know, oops. <laughs> and, uh, first apparently ran in the Baker family because her mother was among one of the first graduates from Vassar as well. Indeed. Yeah, she she comes from a very educated family, and uh, they encouraged her to pursue an education. Yeah, but at the time, being um, a female physician, especially a powerful female physician like she was, was not very easy because she was one of the only women, and she was also overseeing a staff largely made up of men. Mm -hmm. And so she would actually wear clothes designed to minimize her femininity, including uh, man-tailored suits and shirts with stiff collars and ties. And uh, she would joke that her colleagues did not think of her as a woman and often even disparaged women physicians in conversation. (laughs) So maybe... (laughs) Maybe a little downside on that. Yeah, they, they went a little too far. Yeah, yeah you're equal, so we're going to tell you how much we don't like women. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, moving on to Margaret Mead, uh, who lived 1901 to 1978. She is a 20th century American anthropologist and psychologist, and her big work um, was coming of age in Samoa. She she traveled to Samoa and, and lived with the people for a time and wrote this big work about... Um, not only just their society, but how they viewed uh, sexuality, too, mm-hmm. which was, in, in her view, a lot more liberal than people in the West viewed it. And it is still the most widely read book in anthropology. Yeah, I love. Yeah, I almost was an anthropology major because I sort of wanted to be an archaeologist because I wanted to be Indiana Jones. But um so, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of Margaret Mead. But anyway, <laughs> aside from that, uh, she actually presided over the passage of an American Association for the Advancement of Science policy statement deploring discrimination against gay and lesbian scientists. And although Margaret Mead was married, she had, quote, significant sexual affairs with women. And we'll see that actually in a number of these uh, lesbians, especially from the from this time period where a lot of them will be married, some will become, get divorced later on and then later come out. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not, it's not all that uncommon. Right. For them to have been married for a little while. Yeah. Especially, especially for the time. Um, and this Margaret Mead is also, uh, from quite an educated family. 
Uh, her father, Edward, Edward Sherwood Mead, was a professor at the Wharton School of Finance and Commerce and the founder of the University of Pennsylvania's Evening School. And her mother, actually, Emily Fogg Mead, was a sociologist and early supporter of women's rights. So she grew up in a very, uh, in a, in a household that was conducive to education and, and also firsts. And she worked as the curator of ethnology at the American Museum of Natural History, where she would work for the remainder of her career. Hmm. Go, Margaret. Go, Margaret Mead. And on would we go <laughs> to Audre Lorde, a poet, essayist, and novelist who lived from 1934 to 1992. A fun fact about Audre Lorde, for her first published poem appeared in Seventeen magazine. I know, I had no idea. Yeah. Well, I guess I don't know how long Seventeen's been around, but I guess it's been around for a while. Yeah, but she um she said that she would talk in poems. Like if someone asked her how she was feeling, she would talk in poetry. And if she didn't find a poem to recite that uh, accurately portrayed how she felt, she would just write her own poetry. I wish I could do that. I know we should have an entire podcast in iambic pentameter. I. Uh, I would not. We keep it short. <laughs> what about haiku? I could do haiku <laughs> or limerick. <laughs> I like it. Um, let's see. Yeah, she uh, she got her BA from Hunter College and a uh, master's from Columbia, and she served as a librarian in New York public schools from 1961 through 1968. And during that time in 1962, she married Edward Rollins, uh, who she had two kids with, Elizabeth and Jonathan. And then in 1968, she publishes her first volume of poems, The First Cities, and she became a writer in residence at Tougaloo College in Mississippi, where she meets her partner, Francis Clayton, and is subsequently divorced in 1970. And really around that time, she becomes, her, her writing takes on a more activist tone. Right. She became, yeah, she definitely became an activist uh, on behalf of civil rights uh, for, for blacks, women, gay people. She wanted uh, equality for everyone. And she has a quote that I think is interesting, talking about Jesse Helms. Uh, she said, my sexuality is part and parcel of who I am, and my poetry comes from the intersection of me and my worlds. Jesse Helms' objection to my work is not about obscenity or even about sex. It is about revolution and change. Helms knows that my writing is aimed at his destruction and the destruction of every single thing he stands for. So she definitely used her poetry as a platform. Absolutely. And uh, in 1972, her uh, poetry collection, From a Land Where Other People Live, was nominated for a National Book Award. And today, Audre Lorde's legacy lives on with the Audre Lorde Project, which is um, located in New York and is a lesbian, gay, bisexual, two-spirit, trans, and gender, non-conforming people of color center for community organizing. Yeah, the, the vision for the group, uh, according to its website, grew out of the express need for innovative and unified community strate- strategies to address the multiple issues impacting these communities. Now, similar to Audre Lorde, who it, it kind of takes her a little while to, um, she, you know, she's a librarian first for a while and then publishes her first book of poetry and things really start to take off. Similar sort of progression for Susie Orman, the mm-hmm. financial guru who was born in 1951, I believe in the Chicago South Side neighborhood. And she worked, she earned her BA in social work and then worked at the Buttercup Bakery, I want to say in California, for seven years wow. and then becomes a Merrill Lynch account exec in 1980. And then by 1987, she's founded her own business, the Susie Orman Financial Group. 
Yeah, she rocketed to fame in the late 90s when her financial guidebooks, including The Nine Steps to Financial Freedom and The Courage to Be Rich. I Look, okay, I have the courage to be rich. I'm just not. Um, they became bestsellers. So, yeah, she got famous off of that. And as we know, she, she's been on the Oprah show, and I think she has her own show now on OWN Network. Yeah, yeah and I think she has a show maybe on QVC, too. She's all over the place. Um, yeah. And her net worth now is 25 million dollars. Yeah. And, and she's actually, I think, gotten some criticism for some people for the fact that her financial advice has sort of a spiritual bent. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Okay. I read O Magazine because I love it. Oh, and and Susie Orman has uh, a column in there. Like Dr. Phil has a column and, and Mehmet Oz has a column, mm-hmm. Dr. Oz. And, and Susie Orman talks about finances and stuff. And although I don't understand most of what she says, it's nice. You know, it, it makes it easier to swallow financial advice when it's presented in a very um, uh, comforting <laughs> tone instead of just like using all these technical terms. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes me sound completely financially incompetent, but she makes it easy to swallow, I guess. <laughs> she makes it easy to be brave, to be rich. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, she, yeah, she came out publicly in the New York Times magazine, um, but few news outlets will focus on her sexual orientation. Instead, a lot of times the focus is on why it makes good financial sense to get married uh, because there are a ton of tax breaks that come with tying the knot. Um, and Orman obviously can't reap those financial benefits because she is in a same-sex relationship. Right. And we, we you know, we talked about that in our single mm-hmm. podcast. And so none of us can get access to these same financial benefits unless we get married. So maybe that's why, uh, you know, we should follow Susie's advice since if we're single now, we don't can't get those marriage benefits. We better be saving everything that we can. Right. Living wisely. Fiscal prudence. Indeed. Another interesting figure, uh, I think, is Mary Glasspool, who was born in 1954. And she uh, was consecrated as the Episcopal Church's first openly gay bishop. Female bishop. Female. It already ordained a, a oh, that's openly right. gay, yes. gay male bishop. Right. She was the first female bishop. Um, she was ordained on May 15th, 2010 in the Los Angeles Diocese. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was only, I believe, and correct me listeners if I'm wrong on this, but I believe she is the only, the second ordained female bishop in the LA Diocese's 114 year history. So she was kind of making double history at the time. And, um, she'd been partnered to Becky Sander for two decades. And obviously there was a lot of controversy that came up with this. Uh, but the Episcopal church was like, you know what? You're a glass pool. She's, she rocks. Yeah. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, had a, had a major problem with this. And a lot of people wanted the Episcopal church to hold off because there were all these arguments and mm-hmm. splits happening within the church. And they were like, yeah, you know what? She's, she's a good person. Um, uh, Bishop John Bruno of Los Angeles called Glasspool, who was an ordained priest for 28 years, a highly qualified and experienced cleric. She's not afraid of conflict and is a reconciler. So obviously a lot of people have a lot of confidence in her. Mm-hmm. And uh, she cites as her role models, uh, Isabel Carter Hayward, who is a lesbian feminist theologian, teacher and priest in the Episcopal Church, and Carol Anderson, who is the rector of All Saints Church in Beverly Hills, and one of the first women to be ordained into the Episcopal priesthood. So maybe we should look into the Episcopal Church. Sounds like there's Apparently. some interesting women doing yeah. some interesting things. Glasspool said that Carter, for me, represented the courage to break through barriers, not without cost, in order to become fully the person God is calling you to become. Uh, and 
Moving onward, we have Anise Parker, who you mentioned. She was on the um that Out Magazine's Power 50 list. She was born in 1956, and she is currently the mayor of Houston. And when she was elected in 1997 to the Houston City Council, she became the city's first openly gay elected official. And then she was uh, she won the mayoral seat in 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is the mother of three with her partner, and she's a former software analyst. So she's she's kind of done it all. Um, her sexual orientation did not emerge as a campaign issue before her mayoral election um, among four candidates, but it did prompt attacks before the runoff um, uh, against a former city attorney. A group of African-American pastors criticized her supposed gay agenda and a conservative activist distributed flyers featuring her and her partner asking, is this the image Houston wants to portray? But in all actuality, not that many people cared. It's, it's something like 18 yeah. percent of voters even really cared. Which is awesome. Go yeah. Houston. Thank you. Big city. Big city living. Big city. Um, and I, I thought this was uh, really funny. Um, after Anise Parker was elected uh, as mayor of Houston, she joked that she was very proud to have been elected the first graduate of Rice University <laughs> to be mayor of Houston. Right. Yeah. Very good sense of humor about yeah. it all. I like it. Um, there's Hillary Rosen, who also, speaking of women who've done a little bit of everything. Oh, my gosh. Rosen. Oh, my gosh. I mean, she, if there is one name on this uh, list of folks that we've been talking about, Caroline, who definitely fits the power lesbian mold, it is Hillary Rosen. That one, This woman is so powerful. Yeah. During the 2008 election, she served as political director and Washington editor at large for the Huffington Post and was a regular on-air commentator for CNN. Uh, she still does the political uh, commentary uh, over at CNN, and she used to be the former. She's the former chairman and chief executive officer of the Recording Industry Associ- Association of America. She was the one who helped get Napster crushed. Mm-hmm. She crushed all these little <laughs> internet pop-ups, you know. And she actually, I think she actually came out uh, later and said that she re- sort of regretted. Not not that she got Napster shut down, but mm-hmm. that sh- the effect that it had on. Um, downloading and and file sharing and whatever. Yeah. Um, when because of that uh, position with the Recording Industry Association of America, she was regarded as one of the most influential executives in the entertainment industry. And on top of this, <laughs> it, as if being uh, one of the most powerful people <laughs> in the entertainment business is not uh, enough work. She's had a 25 year pro bono history of lobbying for civil rights laws. Yeah, she's been lobbying for LGBT civil rights and she's responsible for a bunch of AIDS policy. Pro mm-hmm. bono. So, oh, and she also uh, helped found Rock the Vote. Oh, yeah. In addition, yeah, <laughs> to all of these other things. And now she is the managing director of the public affairs and communications practice of SKD Knickerbocker. Yeah, which just sounds powerful. But she's basically <laughs> recognized as one of the most, uh, the savviest and most powerful strategists in Washington D.C. and beyond. And beyond. So Hillary Rosen, I would like to meet you. And do you have any free time ever? Yeah. I, I can't see how you do. Do you need a podcaster? <laughs> we could podcast for you. Something. <laughs> um, there's also Tammy Baldwin, who um, is the youngest lady, the youngest lady on our list. Yeah, and someone who I had not. I I am sad to say I had not heard of Tammy Baldwin before. I hope that neither had I. I that doesn't shine poorly on me, but I didn't know about her, even though she is the first openly gay woman to serve in the House of Representatives. Yeah, and she's the co-founder and co-chair 
of the Congressional LGBT Equality Caucus, which has 90 members. And she recently, uh, Representative Baldwin, recently announced on October 13th that she had raised $738,000 in the third quarter towards uh, her Senate race. Yeah, this is for 2012, and it would be for, uh, she's in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. we should mention. And if she wins that 2012 election, she would become the first openly gay senator. Yeah. And right now she's only um, one of three openly gay Congress members, along with Barney Frank and Jared Polis. Yeah, uh, and talking about the Equality Caucus, which she started in 2008, she said that it's working toward the extension of equal rights, the repeal of discriminatory laws, the elimination of hate-motivated violence, and the improved health and well-being for all, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity or expression. She's also the lead sponsor, or was the lead sponsor, I should say, of the ending LGBT Health Disparities Act, which would be the first comprehensive approach to confronting all areas of the healthcare system where LGBT Americans face inequality and discrimination. That did not pass. Um, and she's also the lead sponsor of the Domestic Partnership Benefits and Obligations Act, which would basically put the federal government on par with a lot of Fortune 500 companies that have extended employee benefit programs to cover domestic partners of federal employees to the same extent as those benefits cover spouses of federal employees. Right. That's a big thing that these yeah. Fortune 500 companies, I mean, it's it's half mm-hmm. pretty much have have domestic partner benefits now. Yeah, as so. they should. And I want that should be whole. It, it should be whole. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so she's fighting for the same thing in, in government for government employees. Absolutely. So I'm, um, I'm excited to see what happens in 2012. Hopefully Tammy Baldwin wins that Senate seat. Yeah. It sounds like she's, she's doing pretty well with the fundraising. Mm-hmm. So that's it for our list. Obviously, um, there are so many other women that we could talk about, but mm-hmm. we just wanted to highlight this group, I believe of eight, mm-hmm. our power eight, our power eight. Yeah, I'd like to hear who inspires our listeners. Mm-hmm. Like, who are, who are some of the women who have inspired you and, and people whose careers you follow? Right. For instance, um, from the call I put out on Twitter, someone mentioned Bet Van Buren, who opened, she's a lesbian who opened a gay bar in Amsterdam, which was one of the first in the world. So. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so keep the names coming. Um, email us. Uh, any any trailblazing lesbians of note that yeah. we can we can talk about some more. I'd love to hear about it. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. Well, I have an email here from Cassie in Australia. And um she was uh writing us about the podcast from way back when on women's magazines. And she writes, you said there was a tip from Cosmo about using thongs to, to put your hair up with. What? What? Yes. Really? Yeah. Have you run out of... <laughs> I missed that one. No scrunchies around? Go to your underwear drawer. Um, she writes, well, as an Aussie, I thought of thongs as flip-flops, and I couldn't work <laughs> out how or why women would tie their hair up with shoes until I realized you meant the underwear. <laughs> love that story. That's fantastic. (laughs) Okay. This is an email from M. She said, I wanted to thank you for your podcast on singledom. I just turned 30 in September and am a single mother of an eight-year-old daughter. We live in socially conservative Oklahoma, and I am originally from a small town of about 2,500 people. When I am home visiting, the marriage question always comes up. My favorite version of the question is, when is your family going to marry you off? I often wonder if these inquisitors see the look of horror on my face when I hear this. I did nothing in life in order. I have my daughter at 21, 
graduated college, go Sooners, at 28, so maybe I will marry by 45 or so. Living in the social constraints of Oklahoma, I feel the social stigma of singledom often. So your podcast really was a pick-me-up and helped remind me that I am oh-so-European and Oklahoma just needs to catch up. Absolutely. Indeed, Em. Uh, and again, if you have any emails to send our way, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is the address. And of course, you can always head over to Facebook and find us there and leave us a comment, like us, all that good stuff. And you can follow us on Twitter as well, at momstuffpodcast. And then finally, during the week, you can check out the blog. It's stuff mom never told you at howstuffworks.com. <laughs> Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?